here it is, right on schedule. A new terror has been unleashed upon the world to traumatize the public once again. But this time, the phantom menace is not a bearded Muslim boogeyman. No. It's a virus. There is resistance, of course, just as there was resistance to the 9-11 lives. But is it a movement? Already it's devolving into egos and dogma and bickering. Ivermectin is our only hope. What are you talking about? The vaccine is the bioweapon. What? You believe viruses exist? Hello, everyone. This episode is a short commentary on my recent interview with Dr. Meryl Nass. One of my objectives in that interview was to draw out the contrast between Dr. Nass's position and those of other doctors who may be similarly sceptical of the broad COVID narrative. In particular, I wanted to examine the issue of hydroxychloroquine and its role in the excess mortality figures from the second quarter of 2020. The appearance of sharp spikes in the death rate in the April of that year convinced me there really must be a deadly virus out there. The first serious challenge I encountered to that narrative was from Dr. Klaus Kohlein, one of the co-authors of the book Virus Mania. In an article published in October of 2020, co-authored with investigative journalist Torsten Engelbrecht, Dr. Kohlein made the same observation as Dr. Nass, that toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine had been administered in medical trials. He proposed that these trials, and not a novel coronavirus, is what was really driving the excess deaths. When they started the study, they started it in the end of March, starting April. And I looked at the data and I saw that they started it with hydroxychloroquine in a very high dose. 2.4 gram on the first day, followed with 800 milligrams for 10 days. So people had in their blood after 10 days, they had almost 10 gram of hydroxychloroquine. What would be a normal dose for hydroxychloroquine for people that don't know? Yeah, hydroxychloroquine is an old treatment. We, we know it for years and you use it for prophylaxis for malaria. It's quite untoxic. I used it when I went to Singapore or the Sri Lanka many years ago. And uh, we also have experience in uh, rheumatoid patients. They also take it for years in a dosage 400 milligrams, 200 until 400 milligrams. That's relative untoxic, so you can take it for years. But this treatment, this, this hydroxychloroquine has a very short therapeutic range. That means you can overdose it very easily. Mm. And that, that, was hap that happened in April. And this sharp increase is the, the only explanation is this overdose dosage of uh, hydroxychloroquine, because um, we heard it also in, in Brazil and in England people were dying like flies in April. I heard it from a friend of mine who, is, who takes care of the intensive station here in Kiel. They were uh, telephoning with uh, colleagues in London and they, they, they got the message, well, they are dying here, it's terrible. And they, they were really anxious here in Kiel as well that th this wave will come to us also, but nothing happened. 
because we in German, we didn't use this high dosage. But since these studies are stopped, there is no over, no, there's no excess mortality in no country anymore. It's entirely possible that Dr. Colleen and Dr. Nass speaking out on this issue save lives. Dr. Colleen was informed that an interview he gave torpedoed the use of this antiviral approach to COVID-19. Coincidence or otherwise, the World Health Organization stopped their hydroxychloroquine trial three days after Dr. Nass contacted them, informing them that they were using toxic doses. Dr. Nass, however, has never suggested that these drugs trials, tragic as they were, were extensive enough to seriously affect the death rate. I was therefore keen to ask her about the plausibility of this. Each trial was carried out for several months, and there were only 1,600 people in the UK, all four UK countries enrolled who got the hydroxychloroquine okay. dose. And there were only a little less than a thousand in the WHO trial. So no, they would be lost in the larger numbers of alleged COVID deaths. Is this damning to Dr. Colleen's thesis? Maybe not. Perhaps Dr. Nass has underestimated the use of hydroxychloroquine outside of major trials. The relevant section in Virus Mania opens by reporting reckless distribution of the drug in Spanish hospitals, creating a situation where there was a stark contrast in the death rate on either side of the French border. It could also be that other drugs, such as midazolam, combined with aggressive end-of-life euthanasia programs, were the major culprit. Dr. Colleen has also spoken about how he believes bacterial pneumonia was being misdiagnosed as COVID-19 and then treated entirely inappropriately also with potentially lethal results. If the numbers for hydroxychloroquine simply aren't there, however, it does sink the idea that those particular trials could have played any substantial role. Another observation made by Klaus Kohlein, which I found fascinating, was just how well COVID seemed to respect international borders. I'll play a clip of Dr. Colleen's Virus Mania co-author, Dr. Sam Bailey, explaining this. It's particularly interesting to compare countries that share a border with one another. As we can see, there was a huge spike in excess mortality in Spain, centred around April. But right next door in Portugal, there was barely a bump. And in fact, there was a spike back in the winter of 2017 that was higher than 2020. Similarly, if we look at the UK, we can see a huge spike for England, centred around April, but a much smaller bump for Wales, their neighbour to the west. We can also take a look at how the map of Europe looked on week 12 this year. It is certainly remarkable how contrasting the excess mortality rates were between countries that were right next door to one another. Lots of excess deaths apparent in Spain, France, Italy, Belgium and the UK, while in other parts of Europe this wasn't happening. Now as I say, the conclusions we can draw from population level statistics can be limited, but it is certainly curious that a virus itself would behave so differently when crossing a border. Yes, there can be different demographics such as age and other health factors, but many of these regions have quite similar populations. It certainly raises questions about what else was going on in those countries at the time. These charts show a 24 country comparison from 2017 to week 49 of 2020. Again, the salient observation is that around half of the countries in Europe did not experience any significant excess mortality over 2020. It clearly raises doubts that a respiratory virus alone could possibly be the only factor at work. One point of correction, 
Critics of this position are not necessarily claiming that the virus acted differently in different countries, but rather that it simply did not reach them until a later point. If such a thing is impossible, as the authors of virus mania contend, then it is a slam dunk against those deaths being the result of COVID. I assumed how viruses moved would be a supremely well-documented phenomenon, leaving no room for debate. I asked Dr. Nass if she concurred with the virus mania position. What we had in the United States is probably what you what was also occurring in Europe, is that there were waves in different locations in different at different times. And you can see this very easily by just looking at the New York Times, which will list sometimes by county and definitely by state, what the rates of COVID cases, deaths, and hospitalizations are. And so what happened here is that certain areas got hit very hard, as you said, in the first quarter or the second quarter, other areas got hit later. Eventually, all the areas got hit, but there are still states. My state is, is relatively spared. We probably had about half the death rate as some other states. And I think that is what happened in Europe too. So in early, just as what's happening, you can see it clearly with monkeypox, right? The UK has a lot of cases. Spain has a lot of cases, you know, um, Belgium doesn't. But um, if it spreads the way COVID spread, I don't think it will. Um, you, will, you will get these rising waves, but as more people become immune, you will see less in the places that were hit harder before. So you don't think that it's um, necessarily discounts the idea of a virus that you can have one jurisdiction which is flat in terms of excess deaths, and right next to it, there's a jurisdiction which has uh, a spike. That's not in your Absolutely. view. Absolutely. Right. And, if you, and if you look cumulatively over time, you'll see that those spikes vary in different places. Here again, we see a complete disagreement on a fundamental question that I would have assumed any relevant medical textbook would provide an unambiguous answer to. How do viruses move, and how do they not move? How can medical professionals, who are so unique in their alignment on calling out hydroxychloroquine toxicity, be so at odds on these issues? Like a lot of people, I really have a hard job making sense of this. This returns me to the opening clip, taken from James Corbett's presentation, 9-11 Truth, Lessons Learned. James makes the not uncommon observation that the 9-11 Truth movement was torn asunder by people placing commitment to their particular theories above any sense of group unity. There's surely a deeper conversation to be had here, as Big Tent thinking that incorporates all the craziness and potential outright disinfo can't be the way to go either. However, everyone I speak to wants to hear more dialogue between people of different ideological positions when it comes to questions of COVID, especially when those people do seem to be genuinely coming from a place of goodwill. Everyone considers this entrenchment to be counterproductive to the arduous task of finding truth. My concern is that 10 years from now, conversations that could have resolved a lot of these issues quite quickly will still not have taken place. I hope this is not the case. Thank you for listening. I want to do another brief follow-up episode looking at some criticisms of the idea that hydroxychloroquine is even toxic at the doses it was handed out at. And beyond that, I'm preparing a little documentary on the history of scurvy and why in spite of its massive and devastating consequences, it proved so difficult to nail down the seemingly simple solution.